changing people's mindset a seawall doesn't just have to be for defense it can be designed with so many different purposes um, to support biodiversity to support fisheries productivity to support education and recreation like there's so many opportunities if people Mm. stop thinking about them just for one purpose welcome to animalia a podcast all about making it easy and inclusive to learn about this big beautiful planet the life we share it with and how to protect it Today on Animalia, we are talking about living seawalls. This breakthrough innovation can serve a really valuable role in protecting our ocean ecosystems and coastal cities. Seawalls in their purest form have been around, well, millions of years. Historically, they've always been alive and full of life. Coral reefs, kelp, and mangrove forests have protected coastlines from waves, storms, and they prevent erosion and provide hotbeds for biodiversity. They still do. These are, in many ways, are natural seawalls. Dating back as far as Egyptians, though, humans have been constructing man-made seawalls, usually from concrete, as our coastal cities expand in size and commercial activities. You for sure have seen and walked across many yourself. However, these man-made seawalls have had real downsides on marine life. They cause coastal erosion due to their impact on ocean drift, and they reduce critical coastal habitats, which can have a really dangerous long-term domino effect on thousands of species, water quality, and overall marine ecosystem health. Which leads us to a bit of a challenge. Because oceans are rising and warming at record rates, more and more of our coastal cities need protection. This will lead to more and more man-made seawalls. And if we keep making them like we have been, lead to more and more troubles for our precious coastal ecosystems. About 40% of the world's entire population lives within 100 kilometers of a coast, meaning this is a big issue. Enter living seawalls, and why this innovation is so critical and something we need to celebrate and spread the word about. Joining us today are two of the amazing five-person team behind living seawalls, Dr. Catherine DeFran and Dr. Mariana Meyer-Pinto. Let's hear from them right after the break. If you're looking for a great holiday gift that will make someone happy and do some good in the world, please check out our Polymeda hoodies and sweats. Polymedas are beautiful snails indigenous to Cuba. However, they're under great threat due to illegal trafficking, and with that, the Cuban rainforest. Every purchase goes to support the biology team in Cuba, fighting to keep them around. For more information about this project, check out the link in our podcast notes. Now, back to living seawalls. Okay, so what exactly is a living seawall? So basically a a modular habitat panel mosaic is a living seawall. We've designed uh, habitat panels that incorporate natural features like rock pools, um, seagrass, uh, sorry, seaweeds, roots, um, and uh, mangrove roots. And that kind of recreate some of the natural habitats that we're losing along our coastlines. And so we call them living seawalls because it's it's bringing life back to uh, coastal cities, which would otherwise be a really degraded um, place for many of our marine organisms. Let me elaborate on that a little more. Traditional seawalls often come in vertical curve or mound forms. They're designed to serve one main purpose, protect coastal development and repel waves. What they were not designed to do was protect our marine ecosystems as well. A living seawall uses design and placement to do both, protecting coastal developments as well as coastal marine ecosystems. 
They have patterns and dimensions that foster habitat for the core foundational creatures that spawn life to other species. Think oysters, barnacles, algae, and seaweed. In a way, they replace these spaces that were taken away from traditional seawalls without sacrificing any of the protections that traditional seawalls offer. So there are fundamental differences with seawalls and natural rocky shores, right? So for example, in Sydney Harbor, where we live and most of our work is based, our rocky shores are, are actually mostly horizontal. Uh, so just the fact that the seawalls are vertical, that means that the habitat available for the organisms to live, especially in the intertidal, where it gets submerged and, and um, out of the water during tides, is actually much smaller. Right, so that actually prevents um, organisms is is a more challenging for organisms to to colonize. And when you look at natural rocky shores, either they are vertical or or horizontal, you find a lot of microhabitats. So rock pools and crevices and nooks where organisms can actually use as shelter um, for not only the harsh environment like high temperatures, but also from predators and stuff. So our panels actually provide this extra habitat area and protection for organisms to colonize and live and hopefully thrive. So what we are seeing is that uh, with our different designs, like different organisms like seaweeds and shellfish um, and fish, actually, they utilize the, the different designs in different ways. So we are enhancing the overall biodiversity in these um, in the living seawalls compared to the very flat unmodified seawalls. Mm. And, and we know that they work really fast. You know, as soon as we install them, we see things like snails and fish move straight in and start to take advantage of the habitat that's been created for them. And then there's a cascade effect, right, of those creatures that give life to other other life as well. Can we talk a little bit about, about that? Sure. So um, habitat forming species are, are really crucial to uh, other kinds of animals and um in Sydney Harbour, we have um, shellfish reefs that are really important for little tiny invertebrate um, critters. And we also have really beautiful large seaweeds called kelp uh, that are great habitat for fish. And our panels um, tend to support those sorts of habitat for forming species that are really crucial for other things to have even more space to live, I guess. Yes, and, and to add to that, like what we saw is that if we, if the living seawall panels encourage the growth and colonization of oysters, for example, and other shellfish, these organisms are actually extremely important for like removing particles of the water. So they are quite uh, important for local water quality. So if we can do some of those initiatives at scale, we can actually potentially enhance water quality um, and enhance how we humans can utilize that those areas, right? In terms of recreational, when you have better water quality, you have better fish, you have more diverse, like more diversity. So it really is like a knock-on effect. Let's give a specific example of the trophic cascade effect we're referring to here. Take the oyster, a seemingly inauspicious little fella, but actually hugely important. Oysters serve as natural water filters, trapping particles and sediment as water pumps through their gills. Although, kind of makes you wonder about eating them, huh? Oysters help provide clean water, which gives life to seagrass. 
Well, the seagrass then gives life to the small fish that feed on it, which give life to larger fish. And so we go. This is the cascade effect of providing habitat for oysters where it wasn't before, like traditional seawalls. So how important are seawalls going forward? Look, as Catherine and Mariana will explain, we don't want man-made seawalls. In a perfect world, we wouldn't need them. Our natural coastal barriers like reefs and mangroves would be so healthy, and our civilization would take this into account when developing coastal cities. Only this is not a perfect world. The changes in our oceans brought on by global warming are attacking our reefs and mangroves while increasing sea levels. All the while, more and more people are moving to coastal cities. Cities in the U.S. like Philadelphia, Charleston, South Carolina, and Miami could be looking at year-round flooding by 2040. Some 300 million people across the world will quite literally be living under the high tide line by 2050. Billions of dollars are being spent on seawall projects. So we're going to be constructing seawalls whether we like it or not. We might as well build them with our oceans in mind. One stat that really is alarming to me um, here in the U.S. is I think of three different you know, coastal cities, Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania, Charleston, South Carolina, and Miami. And you know, right now, if we continue to grow emissions uh, at the rate we've been doing, uh, which we know we can't do, by 2040, those three cities may have as many as 100 floods a year. And so there are massive, massive seawall projects, especially in Miami and Charleston, um, and the billions of dollars right now. But help us to sort of understand where we're at today, where we find seawalls, how long we've been building seawalls. And, you know, with the, the changing climate, rising, you know, the uh, warming oceans, the rising sea levels and the, like the sort of more inclement weather and you know, heavier storms, like how much are seawalls going to be a major factor in the way we live, you know, going forward? Um. I think we have been building artificial structures, sorts of seawalls for a long, long time. I think the first seawalls are actually from the Egyptians uh, to protect um, from the from the, the floodings. Um, so we have done a study uh, led by our uh, colleague, Dr. Anna Bugno, that showed actually that not only seawalls, but if you count all the artificial structures that are built, so uh, ports and marinas and even the cables, the area occupied, directly occupied by these structures, actually the size of India, but the area modified in general, it's greater than existing mangroves and seagrass beds. So it's a big footprint that these structures are having. And ideally, what we want is actually to start incorporating nature-based solutions to avoid sea level rise. So we will always advocate for restoration of natural habitats um, when possible. So oyster reefs, coral reefs, mangroves, because we know that these are natural protections for our coastlines and erosions and floodings. We do know, however, that in many places, inclusive like Miami, like highly urbanized places, we don't currently have this space or these structures have already been built. So in that way, that's when the, the Living Seawalls project come in to, to try to revive and bring life back to some of these structures. But we, what we are trying to change is actually the vision that don't start building seawalls just uh, as your first 
action, right? Like think, let's let's rethink about construction. Do we really need to build a seawall or can we do something better for the environment, better for us? Um, if we do need to, to build something, how can we build that better that it's for nature and for humans? So how can we build with nature rather than against nature? I think that's our main um, vision. <laughs> and, and just to add that, I guess one of the really exciting things for us um, being a finalist for the Earthshot Prize is that while our living seawalls right now have been installed and tested for a particular kind of environment, which is generally sheltered uh, estuaries and harbours, um, the Earthshot Prize and, and hopefully what comes after that, um, even if we don't win, is recognition of this issue and our solution and we can start testing it for places like you mentioned where there is going to be increased risk of flooding in future. But these are systems that have you know much greater wave energy than we've actually tested our living seawalls in so far so we're really um, you know excited to see what happens after the Earthshot prize is announced and see how we can expand um, the solution that we've already um, developed for for particular places i hear you 100 percent on the ideal state is we we wouldn't need seawalls right of any kind mm. like you know we would be our, our our oceans temperature would be stable and our coral reefs wouldn't be you know ocean acidification wouldn't be you know ruining our reefs and uh, our mangrove forest would be stable, but that's not what's happening, of course. And in the latest IPCC report, it seemed like the a lot of the ocean changes specifically are reaching sort of close to a point of no return, where they're going to be changing no matter what we do from this point forward, even if we get our act together. But I mean, you know, we have pro proven uh, we can't get our act together on a global emissions basis uh, so far. So is it inevitable that, you know, most of our major coastal cities around the world are going to like rely on seawalls in order to protect the citizens and the communities uh, within them. Is, is that, is, are we at a point where that's basically inevitable or, or where are we with that? I, I don't see it as inevitable because I think there's, you know, some more creative thinking around that. And although we have real constraints with population in our coastal cities, there are options like um, coastal retreat where we could give land back to the sea and we could give land back to create some of these natural habitats, the coral reefs, the mangroves, the oysters that, that Mariana was mentioning. And we have seen in some cities around the world where um, they're building new seawalls, but they actually give up some of that space to develop things like pocket beaches. Um, and they do that, you know, not just to kind of create some more natural habitat, but also to give people um, a better kind of recreational place to hang out at in, in an urban context. Yeah, so I, I think adding to that, so I do think um, we will definitely need to change because things are already changing, as you said. So, um, and then the sea levels will rise no matter what we do at, at this point. But I think that if you think about it 10 years ago, the technology and even the, the thinking about it was practically inexistent. And I think now people, there are really smart people around with, a lot of um, willpower and, and influence that can actually start changing the way and, and translating. So we don't need those traditional kind of terrible seawalls. Um, we can do better. So even if we, we have to do something to protect our assets and protect the populations, but I think ideally, we would do much better than just building like a flat seawall. And, and, and there is ways around that. I was curious on how this team and project came together. 
I, I really think it's such a game changer and one of the most important innovations I've come across in the last year. So what's the story of the team behind such valuable work? Walk me through how you met, how it came together, how this project came together. What's the, when did it start? Um, yeah, just give us kind of the, the history of that. You want me to go, Mary? So I guess the Living Seawalls as a project um, came together in 2018. That was when myself, Mariana, and our other co-founder, Melanie Bishop, uh, brought our separate research projects together to form form one and, you know, brought our minds together and um, our ideas together. And at the same time, started talking to Alex Goad, who's an industrial designer about how could we translate our understanding of the natural world into these beautiful um, 3D uh, molded and then um, fabricated panels and, and bring those habitats to life around Sydney Harbour. Um, so it's been going now for, for three years. Um, our first installation was, was around that time as well. Um, we had a, a wonderful project manager, Maria Voza, who came on really early as well and has been driving a lot of the practicalities of the project um, on a day-to-day -day basis. So. Um, for us, really exciting to have um, a great team of female scientists working together and also to have this um, wonderful um, cross-disciplinary uh, relationship with an industrial designer to bring science, science, industrial design and, and art. The, these, these habitat panels are quite artistic as well. Bring that together and bring it to life. Yeah, and, and just to add to that, like I, I really need to say that we are like on top of the giant shoulders right because this whole as Katie says uh, we got together but this has been based on more than 20 years of research that has been done in Sydney Harbour and around the world in terms of eco-engineering and how can we modify this artificial well first documenting the impacts that these structures have um, and raising awareness for that problem and then to try to find some of solutions which had been quite small scales until until very recently. So really is um, the Living Sea was is five of us. So as Katie said, Maria, uh, we also have like um, a technician that does a lot of the field work um, ideally, uh, plus Alex, but we have a lot of collaborators, right? Like uh, mm -hmm. from, and that helped a lot to get where we are. Yeah, it always, you know, um takes a village the old saying right mm. <laughs> yeah for sure uh, so how many of these seawalls are out in the wild right now what has the response been from the public and private sectors i asked mariana and Catherine to elaborate so far we have 11 installations um in australia so most of them in sydney harbor but we also have in other uh, cities as well, like Adelaide and Townsville, which are big cities in Australia. Um, we also have uh, three international um, installations in Singapore, in Wales, and in Gibraltar. So in Singapore and Wales, it's part of a collaborative. So we have um, our colleagues that are doing the monitoring uh, for us. Um, so we are very exciting. And we have had uh, quite a lot of inquiries. So we are hoping to expand that um, very soon. In terms of how long does it take for us to see effects? I think as Katie said before, it's actually pretty pretty straight away that we can see some of the mobile species like the limpets and razors and fish coming to the panels. Uh, but of course, the more the time 
elapses, the more species settle. Um, so for example, for oysters and kelps, uh, for them to be actually adult size, it, it can take uh, one year or a couple of years. But after three years, we actually see big um, kelp um, kelps in our panels and big oysters as well colonizing. We are now starting to quantify some of these um, other knock-on effects. So we are developing uh, ways where we can start looking at water quality and filtration rates, like the, how much particle this, these organisms take from the water. We are gonna start looking at the kelps and their growths and, and how they contribute to the, to the whole system. But we, are, we do look at fish as well we, and fish, is attracted, as Katie said, not only to the panels themselves, but also to the other things that are colonizing on the panels because it's food and, and protection, extra layers of protection. And we have seen pretty amazing results, actually. We have seen much more fish on our panels than on, on the unmodified seawall. So it's actually like really um, mm. exciting and it's really rewarding to see because it's actually quite quick and it, more time passes, more like better results we have. So it's quite, it's quite exciting. Yeah, uh, to follow on from that, um, apart from kind of knowing how many sites we have, we worked out the other day that we've got a thousand panels in the water now, which is super exciting for us. And our most recent installation went in in Sydney Harbour um, with 384 panels. It's our biggest one so far. And that was um, November last year. And, you know, sometimes we can't wait around for those habitat forming organisms like kelp to arrive. So we actually went and planted them at that site. And we had designed panels specifically so that we could do that quite easily. Um, kelp don't have a root system like plants on land. So we had to, um, you know, create a different way of, of putting them and plugging them into the panel so that they would stay and then provide that extra layer of habitat for, for little fish. It's exciting because so, so much of even great scientific work and conservation work takes years to see the fruits of the labor, right? Sometimes decades. Um, so I'm sure... I'm sure there's some some scientists out there that are also doing amazing stuff that are a little jealous that you're able to see results, uh, you know, so quickly, measurable results so quickly, um, which is just pretty cool. What has been the response uh, of the the cities and the municipalities and those that are where the seawalls are there? Um, have have they responded at all? Do do you think has there been any public education being done about hey look look at this positive impact that's happening in your city uh do or, or you know have you tackled that kind of, that kind of communication side of it yet or still too too early um we're part of the sydney institute of marine science which has an education and outreach program so it's been really great um being able to capitalize on on what is already existing at our institute and use that to amplify the message of the living seawalls project um, to give an example Tonight, we're hosting a webinar on the living seawalls and on this idea of how do we tackle a wicked problem like coastal urbanization by bringing um, science and industrial design together. We can, we can send you an invite if you like. It'd be great okay. if you could join and listen in. Um, so we're certainly really aware of that um, engagement we need. That's, that's a public seminar where we've invited uh, key people from uh, local communities, key people from the government that we work with, key people from industry that we work with. Uh, and we use that kind of forum quite regularly. Um, we also participate in quite a lot of um, school outreach programs. That's really 
fun for us. We love hanging out with the kids and and hearing their creative ideas about what a living seawall um, should include um, has been really interesting. And um, going back to the original point that you made about who are we talking to, uh, I guess um, since we started in, in 2018 as the living seawalls, our our message has just really grown and, and started to reach many more people. Um, so initially working with a single council in the Sydney Harbour region and an industry partner, Volvo, um, we now work with uh, many different councils around Sydney and, and talk to many different government agencies and have other industry partners who include large development organisations as well. Um, and I think that's only going to grow with the visibility that um, being part of the Earthshots is, is going to provide us. Um, and we've seen people not quite understand what our solution was in the beginning to start to see, okay, so I've got this other kind of structure. What can we now do to you know, design it better, build it better and um, have, a, have a good biodiversity outcome from it or, or, or have, a, have a way of cleaning up water quality. Um, so I think the message is growing and more people are kind of getting on board and, and supporting us. Would you agree, Mariana? Yeah, no, I was going to add, I think for any conservation um, type of project, right, I think public support, uh, it's crucial. So you really can't succeed if you don't have a lot of stakeholders involved for lots of different reasons. And this was one of the things, first, because um, as mothers and as scientists, science communication has always been very important for us. Um, personally. So it's something that we were always passionate about, but also to get the project out there, to, to get it started, we actually had to, we did a, a workshop, for example, with stakeholders from the general public, to developers, to local government, to, to listen to their concerns and, and their goals and what they wanted. And to try to incorporate that into our solution, because I think that's the only way we can actually get things done. So it's it's super important. So our outreach is actually, the educational program that, that SIMS have is, is actually amazing. And as Katie said, goes from schools to, you know, local state government, um, developers big as land lease and Volvo. So it's it's actually, quite quite interesting, quite quite nice. Remember that brief note on oysters and water quality earlier? Well, you heard it from me, but how about we hear from the actual scientists? This is a really important point to keep stressing, that these living seawalls can lead to improved water quality. While the team is still gathering more data to measure this concretely, there is every reason to believe this is the case. How do living seawalls improve water quality specifically, and, and, and what does that mean in terms of how you're measuring that? So um, we actually haven't directly, it's like a disclaimer, we haven't directly measured uh, water quality around our seawalls yet. What we do have is from our early research in, in more um, experimental panels, so they were smaller, we did measure how much the oysters on those panels were uh, filtering the water. And as I said, oysters are kind of a powerhouse of filtration, right? So they can clean literally like, I don't know if you've seen those classic videos that you have like a tank with and without oysters with turbid mm -hmm. water. And after two hours, the water is clean. So what we saw is that on our own um, panels, these oysters actually are filtering more 
than oysters that we found on unmodified seawall. So we have greater particle, like removal of particles from the water. So what we are hoping now is that to measure that, we actually need to create those chambers, like chambers so we can measure particles in the water before and after in a controlled kind of sciencey way. Um, and we are developing that. Uh, Alex, which is the designer, has done it. So we are trying to do that to actually start measuring um, the particle rates in the seawalls compared to the, in the living seawalls compared to the unmodified seawalls. But for what we know uh, from our early experiments and visually, like the amount of oysters we do have quantified in our panels, that we are likely having impacts in the local water quality by simply removing those particles out. And what we see actually is that this is enhancing even people's connections with the with the seawall. So we see a lot of fishermen uh, fishing in our uh, living seawalls as recreational fishers. So this probably is all part of that cycle. Up to this point, you may be thinking of coastal erosion and the relationship with seawalls as something that primarily impacts larger cities. However, it's really important we acknowledge what is happening in many smaller coastal towns and how this is impacting the native people that rely on these waters. For these people, they rely 100% on their coastal ecosystems, particularly for food. There are no alternatives to the nutrients they need. There are no imports coming in from fisheries across the world. They live on these coastal waters. However, as our guests point out, turning to any man-made intervention, even the living seawalls they created, should not be the first option when losing valuable coastal ecosystems like mangrove forests. We must prioritize natural solutions and protect them in every way we can. Only when these options are exhausted should we turn to technology to intervene. Um, I guess going back to what Mariana said before is that we would always advocate for um, these smaller coastal areas that are experiencing erosion, exploring natural opportunities of restoring coral reefs and oyster reefs and mangroves. Um, but if they are going to experience a major coastal development that involves a seawall, then I think that it would be important to kind of start there um, with the creativity around how would that seawall be designed. Um, and we have these, these panels which might fit onto an existing seawall, but if an, a new seawall was going in, then there's, there's certainly other ways that that can also be designed to make it better for, for biodiversity. And maybe it's not panels in that instance, but um, it requires probably that I idea of, of science and, and design and, and architecture to come together to, to make something um, positive for biodiversity, a reality. Yeah, so... I think kind of adding to that answer to, to your question is like, we will always advocate for avoiding construction, right? So mm -hmm. we, in, that, in that sense, we think that probably it would be a better, more urgent use for the living seawalls on things that are already constructed. So like the big cities um, and try to restore what we can. Um, you know, so, so it's a bit, but if you do need to construct, then definitely we need to then focus a lot on those small towns. So it's a bit of a, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I think of like a, um, a country like Mauritius, right. Which a couple of years ago was just decimated by the oil spill and that oil spill wiped out a lot of the mangrove forests that they rely on. Um, and, you know, yes, it's possible that, those mangrove forests can be sort of naturally regenerated over time. 
Uh, although, as we know, it takes years and decades sometimes to truly get all the oil damage out of these these re- these waters. But you know, in that case specifically, you know, would it still be advantageous to you know you utilize living seawalls on as new construction to you know fast track the restoration of those mangrove forests uh, is that is that something that's that's plausible or would you say in like the Mauritius case you know uh, you know would still be better off kind of doing it you know kind of organically in a slower fashion like how would you tackle something like Mauritius and and what's happened to their mangrove forests from that from that spill I think we would encourage natural remediation of the spill and natural regeneration of the mangrove forest. And I think with with additional plantings, that would be something that would be possible rather than building a, a seawall that might not be needed in, in that sort of area. Um, that, that's yeah. probably our philosophy. As, as Mariana said, if, if it's inevitable, if it's already there, um, then let's build it better. But if it's not, then let's not build where we don't need to. Yeah, yeah. makes sense. And, and- yeah, and I think um, there are ways to kind of speed up uh, those kind of um, so res- like active restoration projects, right? So as you said, like if you leave the nature, sometimes takes takes a bit. They need like a pushing hand, mm-hmm. uh, but we have the capacity to do that uh, without necessarily having to build. So, yeah, and I think we need to be conscious about habitat types. Um, so. The mangrove habitat type, it's, it's, it's muddy, um, it's not very oxygenated. Our seawalls, it's a hard structure. It's a totally different habitat. So it's, it's almost, you, ca- you can't really replace um, a mangrove with the living seawall. You create something else that maybe is, is great as well. But if you've got the option to restore what was originally the habitat there, that would probably be my, my preference. Yeah. So how much do these living seawalls cost? What is the business model for deploying them? It's still very early days, so long-term, not all of this is figured out quite yet. But given the economic value of healthy marine ecosystems, it's easy to foresee a scenario where these pay for themselves. It sounds like there's two approaches, right? There's the retrofitting sort of existing seawalls with the panels, which seems like the preferred approach, right? Because you're not constructing new, new walls. But as you said, you could also, you know, kind of from the ground up, let's say, you know, a city like Charleston, is, is going to be building a massive seawall four and a half miles long with or without you. And mm-hmm. you're at the ground stage of that construction. Hey, you might as well do it correctly from the beginning, right? Instead of having a retrofit at the end. So in both those two approaches, the retrofitting with panels versus the, you know, kind of uh, ground up construction, what do the costs look like, um, uh, you know, both for the retrofitting and then for the construction, what does the cost look like for doing something customized living seawalls versus doing a traditional kind of concrete slab seawall? Okay. Um, I couldn't comment on the cost of a traditional concrete slab seawall, um, but knowing some of the costings around um, seawall developments where they have had people like us engaged from the beginning and have had an opportunity to, to not retrofit but inform the design, um, I mean, that's in the order of hundreds of thousands of dollars to millions of dollars um, versus our living seawalls option, which is is probably a, a few thousand dollars. Um, so there is a, is quite a big difference between the retrofit and the um, incorporation of, I guess, more complex ecological ideas into a, a new development. Um, but Mariana, do you know what a traditional seawall would cost? No, I don't. But I, I do think that it's much more cost effective. Yeah, if, if the... the 
the living seawalls idea is is embedded from from the beginning right because mm-hmm. building those so compared to the whole cost of designing and doing it adding the living seawalls and the design it's actually not much more um we are talking about millions developments right and, and yeah the i'm thinking about the the seattle mm-hmm. bay seawall where they installed light emitting panels yeah. um, and those panels each one of them cost like a couple of hundred thousand but it was great for the salmon who needed to swim underneath the boardwalk they needed the light to kind of guide them um because, so yeah. it was an investment that they did in seattle but i don't think a lot of places are, are investing as much money as probably is needed for some of those sorts of innovations as well yeah i think unfortunately it's still the mentality is quite short term Right. Mm-hmm. So if you think in terms of an investment, as Katie said, as a longer term, like if you design those properly, um, even the economical benefits that you can have from them, from improvement in water quality and biodiversity is massive, but it's never really taken into account um, when you are actually designing. Right. So is this still something that one more thing that it's proven why it's so important to get the message out? Um, so these are so retrofitting um, in terms of in Sydney Harbour. It varies a lot in the size um, of the of the seawall, and we usually do hire contractors um, to to do that. Uh, so we we sell the panels, um, we provide the panels, and usually contractors install them, and and they are around yeah a few thousand. Australian the, dollars. <laughs> the, the panels, correct me if I'm wrong, are being 3D printed. Is that correct? No, the, the no. mold is 3D printed. The mold is and 3D then, printed. yeah, the materials are poured in. Um, so we have, we have some flexibility in the materials that we can use, but we can't yeah. 3D print those materials. Got it. Um, is that, do you, I mean, is that just with today's 3D printing technology or do you think that is possible in the, in the future? Probably today's 3D printing and today's materials that are available for 3D printing. So maybe in Got the it. future we would, we might even have a printer that we we take out into the field with us and we print straight onto the site what we want to design and, and then we could get even more complex than what we're yeah. already doing. So um, yeah, possibilities are endless, I think, with 3D printing as that technology grows. Absolutely. For, for those existing projects that you mentioned earlier that are out there in the, you know, and deployed in the field, uh, Help me understand is two questions for those. One, did you, are you primarily selling the designs and the molds and then another contractor's actually like doing the construction or are you, or are you doing the construction all the way through? And my second question is who is paying for those today? Is it the cities? Um, are it private companies or it's the construction companies themselves? Like uh, who are you kind of selling to? Yeah, Katie, probably your best. I'm going to go. Um, Okay, so I guess the ones that we've had to date, um, what we what we usually do is we go out and we survey sites and we try and understand what's living there already. And we compare that to some of the natural systems that are around those sites that helps us decide what kinds of living seawalls habitats might be suitable um, before we can advise on like panel purchases um, for people that we're working with. In some cases, we've worked with contractors for the installation and then we continue monitoring those panels um, through their lifetime or as long as we can afford to do it to see what arrives and and how do things change over time. And we really wanna understand that over long periods. 
um, because marine life does change a lot through time. Uh, in terms of who's paying for it, uh, we've had such a variety of support um, from councils have paid for it, uh, industry like Volvo and Lendlease have paid for these sorts of installations, and then we have private donors who've paid for these sorts of installations as well. Um, and we've even been talking about um, more kind of crowdfunding arrangements where if an individual can't afford to you know, purchase a, a whole seawall, not everyone has that kind of money, there's still the option to try and purchase a panel amongst a, a consortium and then um, still have a living seawall for yourself as well. And we also have um, scientific grants uh, because mm. we are scientists. So we actually write grants uh, for governments, um, local, state, and federal to, to get money to, to support the research uh, involved mm. with that. So it really is a, a mix of, of people that are funding this. I guess that's the thing to really point out the research and development aspect. Um, yeah. Most of the funding goes towards that and trying to expand our understanding of what we need to do next for this um, solution. And, um, you know, when I hear words like uh, donors and grants, um, I, I think nonprofit. Um, is that how you're set up today? And if so, do you see a possibility long term where, you know, as, as more and more cities and projects understand this technology and this, the benefits of it, that you could actually have larger impact as a for-profit company. Um, where do you kind of sit with that mindset? I, I, I can take that one. Um, I think our idea is always, is, is, it is to definitely have a much larger impact, but is to keep as a nonprofit um, organization. So we are even thinking of doing a spin-off company, but it would be um, kind of this uh, social integrated uh, type of companies that every profit is actually reverted back into research and development. So for us, um, that is a big thing. This is a science-driven um, project, right? And there are lots of things that still need to be done in terms of how can we adapt this technology and this idea to other structures, what type of materials, how can we decarbonize some of this construction. So there are so much that needs to be done. So the idea is that any profit we get selling these panels is actually a straight converting into research and development, either mm -hmm. by hiring people like um, Maria Naria, who are doctors, uh, have PhDs and, and do all the research uh, based on that, or by developing the, the, the new products and testing the new products themselves, doing the monitoring. So, so that's our idea. But it's definitely like getting global, but with that kind of science-driven um, philosophy. Yeah, I guess we should mention as well, um, Marianne and I actually work uh, for different universities. So our salaries are, are covered by our university work. We're not being paid by the project or anything like that. And that's, that's how we can continue. But we do really like the idea of supporting young researchers like our project manager and technician and um, the idea of studentships for other PhD students to learn about the project and, and work with us. So we're hoping to kind of expand that way as well. Finally, what's next for the team? Now that they have this fantastic innovation in the field, how will they iterate and expand their use and benefits? 
so much to do. <laughs> um, I think we are really interested in uh, new products for new structures. So things like as pilings and breakwaters and groins um, and how can we adapt that um, technology and that uh, philosophy to, to those structures because we know that seawalls is only a, a part of it, but there is much more, right? So it's, it's definitely on our cards, as I said, like materials is a big question that we have and how can we uh, really decarbonize the whole thing and, and, and get uh, optimize um, our constructions and our installations. Um, we are hoping like our bigger plans, we are hoping to have a living seawall in each continent and build cap, especially in developing countries. Uh, because these are the places that we are going to see increased development. Uh, so places like Brazil, for example, where I'm from, and how can we build capacity um, in those areas? And like Skady mentions, um, with studentships and training scientists and building the whole um, research uh, development there in, in that area. So they can then take it off and do what it's best um, for their environmental conditions, because this really is um, not one size fits all kind of thing. Like we really do think that each type of design depends on the environmental conditions and the biodiversity, the local biodiversity. So it's really something that it needs to be researched in different environmental conditions um, in general. Uh, what else, Katie? Challenges. Um, so I guess forefront of our minds is, um, you know, trying to roll this out to more countries, you come up against permitting um, and permissions issues. So uh, we know that that's been a challenge for us in Sydney. And I think we've kind of got it worked out now. And we've got a bit of a framework for how we can approach that in other places. But we would just love to um, keep influencing policymakers and have, you know, living seawalls or this sort of approach to um, building in marine systems become um, the mainstream, you know, if you are going to build the regulation around it says you have to think about how to enhance biodiversity or other useful ecological functions. Um, and I guess one, one more structure to add in, I don't think you mentioned the capacity to, to build offshore and um, uh, no, offshore oil platforms, gas platforms. Um, there's a lot of things starting to be built out into the ocean because we're running out of space on land. And those are other places where we see um, that we can build them better. So the seawalls that are living seawalls that are out there uh, in the field today of all the different animals and, and creatures that have taken habitat there, what is your favorite one for each of you? I, I know my favorite one. Um, we have this fantastic picture of one of our early experimental panels, um, a moray eel coming out to, to swim around it and, and, and feed on what was growing there. Um, and I just love moray eels. I think they're fantastic. Oh, it's hard to pick for me, I, but I have you to say- You can't pick like, the Mora eel because that's been taken. No, no. I, I have to say it's, it's a boring one and no one likes them, but I actually find them fascinating. I, I did my master on them. It's barnacles. I love barnacles. Mm. Oh, I barnacles aren't boring. If you actually understand barnacles, they're fast, they're anything it. but boring. <laughs> exactly. Like I, I did my master's on them in zoology. I used to dissect them and have- um they have the biggest penis in the animal world like that. Okay, i didn't know that uh, <laughs> relative to size relative to size, <laughs> okay, relative to size. <laughs> um 
but they are extremely important as well, filtering water. And I don't know, I just, they, they can hurt you if you're not careful, but I yeah. actually really like them. It, it reminds me, one of my favorite sea creatures that I think people see and think are just basic and boring, but they're anything but that are sea stars, starfish. Mm. Oh yeah. They're, they're literally extraterrestrials in my mind, um, in terms of like <laughs> the way they behave. And, um, but you know, to the average person where you only usually see them dead and they wash up shore. Right. And they, mm. they look like seashells almost, uh, but they're anything but, um, yeah, in terms of their fascination. Cool. So I think barnacles, yeah, I think barnacles in that category of sea stars and octopus that are just like if the closest thing I think we have to extraterrestrials <laughs> on, this, on this planet. Yeah, um, very cool. Well, I applaud you for the work you're doing and the accomplishment, and it's very cool. And uh, hopefully, we, you know, we'll be helpful in getting the word out and more people to to know about this stuff. And uh, yeah, just kudos to what you've done and, and a big thank you on behalf of planet earth. I'll thank you for, <laughs> for her. Yeah. I don't speak for her. I don't want to pretend I do, but <laughs> I, I assume she's, she would be thankful. Yeah. I like, well, like that much. you refer to, to, to the planet as she, is that like a common thing in, in, I always in think Earth. think of her as a she, yeah. I, that might just be, oh, that's yeah. awesome. Oh, yeah. Nice. <laughs> thank um, you very much. A big thanks to Catherine and Mariana for joining us and to the entire team at Living Seawalls for this valuable work. You can check out more about them and follow them in our podcast notes. As always, thank you for supporting Animalia and thank you for standing up and fighting for this big, beautiful planet and all the incredible life that calls it home.